0: Thanks for joining us for the Heritage Bible Church podcast from Lincoln, Nebraska. We desire to be a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify Christ and love people well. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Well, good morning. What a joy to be together again and be able to come to God's Word on this Father's Day. I'll have a, a typical Father's Day message where I will berate all of the Fathers and... No, that's not that's not true. We're, we're just going to be in the Gospel of John. Grab your Bibles, go to John chapter 4. There's something about this. I don't know if you've noticed this, this pattern in, in preachers. On on Mother's Day, you, you celebrate the mothers, you tell them how wonderful they are and how much you appreciate them, and then on Father's Day, you berate the fathers. That's, a, that's, a, that's the normal pattern, but we're not going to follow the, the normal pattern. We're going to be back in the, the Gospel of John, but we will have a little bit to say, uh, dads, to you, hopefully to encourage you a little bit. We have been in... Uh, John chapter 4 for a few weeks now, and we've been seeing our Lord going from a successful ministry in Judea and then into Samaria, and in Samaria he has this discussion. We spent about three weeks on this discussion with the, the woman of Samaria, the woman at the well, where he tells her about the water of life, and he explains to her that true worship is worship that takes place in spirit and in truth. And then through her testimony, through her encounter with Christ, the knowledge of Christ spreads to the the townspeople in this town in Samaria. And and Christ has this incredible outreach to them, followed by two days of full ministry. And so in this place where you would expect Christ to be rejected, he finds a great response of genuine belief. And verse 43 tells us in chapter 4 that, That after the two days in Samaria, Jesus left for Galilee. And really, as he leaves Samaria and into Galilee, he's resuming the the trip that he began back in verse 3. So John 44, then Christ tells his disciples, he says, For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. This is maybe just kind of a declaration to the disciples. Hey, we're we're moving on. We're going to the the next place. Uh, Just so you know, it's not going to go so well. Just so you know, a prophet has no honor in his own country. And so moving from a place where you would expect Christ to be rejected to a place where you would expect Christ to find a a welcome reception, Christ is saying exactly the opposite is going to happen. Now, it's interesting that you see this statement in verse 44 because you you see the same statement recorded in the rest of the Gospels. Matthew chapter 13, Mark chapter 6, Luke chapter 4. Uh, the, The first two of those refer to Galilee in general, and then the last one to Nazareth in particular. And we know that Christ is from the region of Galilee, and more specifically, the the town of Nazareth. And we know this all the way back kind of to the the Christmas story, right? Matthew chapter 2 talks about how Joseph fled for the regions of Galilee, and verse 23 says, and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Matthew chapter 4 then tells about how Jesus is going through all of Galilee and, and teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. So he, he has this ministry in, in his home region. And even if we go back to John in chapter 1, we see this gem where Philip tells Nathanael that we found the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel says to him, what? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? <laughs> Philip says, come and see, come and see invites him to, to come to Christ. And so here in verse 44, when it says that a prophet is without honor, it, it refers not just to Galilee, but it, it's kind of a comparison. Galilee as compared with Samaria, Jesus, uh, Jesus' own country, Galilee, his own people have rejected him, and we compare that to the incredible reception that he received among the Samaritans. But It's interesting, you go to verse 45, and what does it say about how Christ was received? So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him. Having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. And so it it seems at first glance like a contradiction because his home region did receive him. They did welcome him. But I think one of the big takeaways for our passage this morning is to notice that they are not welcoming Christ with a thorough belief, with a full acceptance as the Samaritans did. They're not accepting Christ, welcoming Christ for for who he truly is. They're welcoming him because of what he does. The things that he did at the Passover feast in Jerusalem. And we can jump back to chapter two, verse 23 to be reminded of this. It says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, at the, at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. And so there's kind of a, a, a surface-y, if you wanna say, reception, I think, that's happening in Galilee I imagine they're just kind of hoping that Jesus would do the same things that they saw when they were visiting Jerusalem but listen Christ is not in the entertainment business okay Christ is not traveling around trying to to build his fan base here you know get more subscribers to his website we remember in John chapter 2 verse 24 right after it describes uh, the, the, the the things that he did in Jerusalem at the Passover and how people were believing in, in him it says but Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. The idea is that they were believing in him, and we're kind of using air quotes, right? They were believing in him, but Jesus wasn't believing in them. He knew that this wasn't a deep belief, a a true, genuine belief. They were pretty cool with Jesus that did miracles, and they wanted to see some miracles, and they wanted to experience some healings and and kind of be around, you know, everything that was going on, but they didn't really understand who Christ was. And they hadn't committed themselves to him. And not only that, but Christ's declaration that a, a prophet has no honor in his own country will be borne out soon enough in his life and ministry. We have a, a, a fuller account of how Christ was treated. And if we go to the synoptics, then uh, we do here in the Gospel of John. Luke chapter 4 talks about how Jesus returns to Galilee and the power of the Spirit and news about him is spreading and he begins teaching in the synagogues and it says and he's praised by all And that just sounds wonderful and warm and fuzzy and man jesus is is hitting on all cylinders but then as christ goes to the synagogue in nazareth as he goes to his his hometown he takes the opportunity to teach in the synagogue and he reads from the scroll of isaiah isaiah 61 a passage about the messiah and Then in Luke 4.21, Jesus says, after reading this messianic passage, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And so he makes this direct, clear claim to be the Messiah. And he goes on to tell them uh, about how the Gentiles are going to be included in God's plan of salvation. And even in that context, he tells them, now listen, I'm sure you're going to want to see Miracles like I did in Capernaum, probably referring to our passage in John today. So he's kind of recognizing you're, you're here for the show. You're here for miracles like I did in Capernaum. But I'm here to teach you about who I really am, about the Messiah. And, and in that same context is where he says, again, no prophet is welcome in his own hometown. And as soon as Christ starts to make these direct claims to be the Messiah, as soon as he starts talking about God's grace towards the Gentiles, We see their response. Luke chapter 4, 28 to 31. It says, And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. And he came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. So notwithstanding the super cool part where Jesus just walks through their midst, right? That's like my favorite parts in the Bible where Jesus like just, just this kind of like subtle show of power, like untouchable kind of Jesus, right? But notice how he's treated in his own home country. And so this is what Christ is is predicting. This is what Christ is referencing. And so we come to verse 46 of John chapter four. and, And the main story for this morning is the healing of the nobleman's son, but we kind of have this background as our understanding. And I want to just borrow Homer Kent's brief outline for this morning. So I'll give this to you. I love the way it focuses our attention on the main issue. And the main issue is faith. The main issue in the gospel of John is is belief. And so in verses 46 to 48 this morning, we have faith based on signs and wonders. Faith based on signs and wonders. This is kind of you know, low-level, in a sense, faith. Coming to Christ for, for, for what we can get from Christ, in a sense, in, a, in an earthly sense. In verses 49 to 50, we have faith based on the words of Jesus. And we'll see this nobleman, we'll see this man uh, uh, following through on what Christ tells him to do. Faith based on the word of Jesus. And then in verses 51 to 54, we have faith placed in Jesus himself. A true understanding of faith in the person of Christ. So verses 46 to 48, therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Well, again, the context that we come to this with, we see in verse 46, even in the word therefore, right? In other words, precisely because of the reception that the Galileans displayed, precisely because their reception was so dependent on miracles, unlike the the faith of the Samaritans, therefore on visiting Canaan and being petitioned to perform a miracle, Jesus' response is driven by their superficial belief. We might ask the question, why does Jesus leave and go to this place in the first place? Why why leave a place where successful ministry is happening? I mean, just just set up shop and just bask in the the glory and the belief and the adulation of the people there. But again, this is not a business endeavor. This is not trying to figure out the best way to market Jesus. Christ is doing the will of the Father. Look at verse 34 again, chapter 4, verse 34. Christ is driven to do the will of the Father. And so Christ moves forward even though he knows he'll be rejected by many. In fact, we we might say the Messiah's rejection is precisely how the plan of God will be accomplished. And so it's a reminder to us that the easiest path, the, the path of least resistance, isn't always the path of God for us, right? That sometimes God calls us to do hard things, to do difficult things, to go through difficult seasons. I was reminded in, in, uh, in reading this of a time years back in our ministry where we, we got a call and we got an opportunity to, to go and, and help with a ministry and I, I felt just a, a genuine need, kind of a, a pull to go and, and meet this need in another ministry. But, but boy, we were so happy <laughs> where we were. And so comfortable where we were. And, and uh, I talked to my wife. I said, you know, I, I could really see us meeting this need. I, I know it's a genuine need. But I said, I just, um, I don't think we should do it. I said, I, I just feel like, you know, we could, we could be comfortable here where we are the rest of our life. My wife's response was, oh, I, I didn't know God called us to be comfortable. I said, well, your super spirituality is going to get your house sold and we're going to pack up and move, which is exactly what we did, right? And it's just that remote god doesn't necessarily call us to a life of comfort god calls us to a life of service and this is exactly what christ models for us there are so so, so christ moves he he, he follows to, to accomplish the plan of god so he goes back to cana which is where the first miracle the, the wine at the wedding occurred right And and I think, again, part of the reason for going to Galilee is in order to be rejected, in order to to show forth the truthfulness of the statement that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And so in this story, we have three main characters, the nobleman, the nobleman's son, and Jesus. And this royal official or or kingsman uh, must have been a pretty big deal. He's got, uh, we assume, probably connections to Herod Antipas, who's not exactly a king, but essentially functions in that way. He's the tetrarch of of Galilee at the time. And this brings to mind, as I think about the noble in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26, which says, consider your calling, brethren, that there are not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Why is that? Why do we have verses like this and, and others? I think oftentimes people of influence, people of wealth, people who have achieved a measure of success in the world's eyes may not see their need. Maybe they don't turn to the Lord because they, they think they've got it all figured out. And even the Jews, if you think of of their thought process at this time, they may have seen a man like this, nobleman coming, and, and they may have been accustomed to seeing Riches as a sign of God's favor, but Christ describes it as a barrier, right? A barrier in relation to the kingdom of God. Turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verse 23. Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. they were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And this idea that all things are possible with God, what seems so unlikely, so improbable to us, is possible in salvation, in the spiritual realm with us. And this is, again, Christ constantly trying to move their thinking from earthly thinking to spiritual. So we see the conversation that Christ has with Nicodemus, and Nicodemus comes and we think, oh, this guy will never get saved, and yet he does. We see Christ with the woman of the well, the woman at the well, with the with the people of Samaria, and we say this will never work, and yet it does. Christ draws them. We see this rich man come, and we say this guy will never humble himself, would never submit to become a follower of Christ, and yet that's exactly what we're going to see play out. There was a lady I, I read about this week from the 1700s, the the Countess of Huntingdon, and she was friends with uh, George Whitfield and John Wesley, and, and a big supporter of their evangelistic endeavors and she was famous for saying that she was saved by an m right this woman of status of prestige of wealth and when she was asked what she meant what do you mean you're saved by an m she said well paul said not many noble are called he didn't say not any so she got in by the m right that christ can save anyone and so here's this nobleman and listen by god's grace a situation has arisen that brings him to the end of himself. You understand? By God's grace, his son is sick and dying. By God's grace, this situation causes him to to be desperate, to be humbled, and to seek out Christ. In verse 47, when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and is imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. This nobleman comes to Christ because... He's heard what Jesus can do. Maybe he was in Jerusalem and and saw the works of Christ, like verse 45 mentions. And so he travels 20 miles to Cana to seek Jesus' help because his son is seriously ill. He has a fever. He's he's slipping away. I imagine this, this man, this father with... His prestige and, and, and power and wealth had pursued every avenue that he possibly could to get his son healed. He, he got the best doctors. He, he'd done everything. And, and now in desperation, he comes to Christ. And men, this is what fathers do, right? We, we do whatever we need to for our family. And this man had come to the end of his rope. And, and so it seems commendable that he would come to christ on behalf of his son and and up to this point in the story my my heart is just with this man and and i'm just kind of right there along with him and and, and desperate for his son to receive healing and i imagine the next words out of christ's mouth are let's go i'm with you come on let's go get your son and and save him but we we come to verse 48 and we see christ's response It, it maybe seems harsh to us at first unless you people see signs and wonders You simply will not believe. But again, understanding our context, understanding even our our outline, our first outline point, faith based on signs and wonders. I think we read this rightly as a rebuke, but it's not a rebuke only to this man. It's a rebuke to the entire crowd. He kind of detects this nobleman's faith that, that wants a cure, that wants something from Christ, but it's a, a faith that's based in seeing miraculous deeds. It's a superficial faith that, that doesn't really understand who Christ is, or what it is to believe in him, or what kind of healing Christ ultimately offers. And we're going to see as we go on in John, we get to John chapter 6, we're going to really see what happens to those who, who follow Jesus mainly because of the signs and wonders. We're going to see that these are not true, lasting disciples. And this is the stage that the nobleman is at, coming to Christ for what he wants in the physical realm. And listen, there's no doubt the ministry of Christ, the miracles of Christ, the healing of Christ brought profound blessings for so many people. Matthew chapter 11, remember when uh, when, when John sends, John the Baptist sends, and, and, and he's kind of questioning things and, and looking for some, you know, assurance at the end of his life and, and ministry. The disciples are told to go and report the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. These incredible things and people being impacted in real ways by the ministry of Christ. And Matthew chapter 12 says, many followed him and he healed them all. I've heard theologians commentators say there was probably hardly a sick person anywhere in Jerusalem by the time Jesus was done. He's just he's doing so much, you know, ministry of mercy, so much compassion ministry, so much healing, but still the majority remained non-committal. Even seeing all of this, even even being around all of this, they're uncommitted at best and hostile at worst. You go further on in Matthew chapter 12 and Christ actually tells them that those who simply seek signs are evil and spiritually adulterous. And again, the concern here is for people who seek Christ simply for what they can get out of it, simply for what he might do for them in an earthly sense. I think this is a danger still today. That people would come to some form of religion or, or, or church or you know, some semblance of Christianity simply because it, it makes them feel better about themselves or they enjoy the community or, or whatever benefits they perceive that they get from it without really embracing Christ for who he is. These people are, are looking at the works of Christ, but they're ignoring the words of Christ, the teaching of Christ. They're craving his power, but ignoring his person. It reminds me of the, the parable of the sower, right? Parable of the sower and the soils in Matthew chapter 13, where we see examples of initial enthusiasm, initial positive response or, or belief, but it turns out to be shallow with no real root. True faith is spiritually produced. True faith is is not earthly and shallow i really like the way that josh moody describes this in his in his commentary on john he says with unerring accuracy our lord put his finger on the weakness of the people's faith they were following jesus as if he were a religious sideshow hurry hurry don't miss the latest miracle get your popcorn here Crowd in close folks so you can see the new miracle there was such an extreme focus on signs and wonders that people were missing the real identity. It seems that the poor, confused nobleman had the same idea because of his repeated emphasis on Jesus to come down to Capernaum to heal his son. He thought that if Jesus would work his magic, his son would be healed. Even today, those who are constantly seeking for signs and wonders and miracles to confirm their faith may be missing the intent of such things to know Jesus himself. If we focus on sensationalism, miracles and signs, our focus is not on Christ himself, who alone is sufficient. There's some real application for us today, for Christians of our day. There are believers today who who have a desperate craving to see signs and wonders or to hear God speak directly to them or through them. And there are so many self-styled false teachers, some of the biggest Christian names on television that deceive people by appealing to these desires for healings and miracles. And the prosperity gospel or the health and wealth gospel or the most popular name that it's branded by really is the word of faith movement is really a perversion of the true gospel of Christ because it puts undue focus on these supposed miracles and these claims that god rewards our faith or god rewards our giving of course you got to give to my ministry right uh rewards our our faith or our giving or a certain type of prayer and he rewards it with physical blessings with healing with uh with wealth health and wealth rather than spiritual transformation instead of a true gospel it turns god into a magic genie right rub the lamp just the right way, say just the right thing, give just the right amount, and God will be obligated to to give you all of these blessings. But here's the thing. Scripture never says that the Christian life will be easy. Christ's call is to take up our cross and follow him. I mean, what a call. Grab your implement of death. Grab your electric chair and follow me. It's an incredible call. And we know from Scripture that pressure will come, that trials will come, but we also know that Christ is more than enough. He doesn't promise an easy road. He doesn't promise us health and wealth, but he does promise to be with us every step of the way and and to give us the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit and a multitude of spiritual blessings. Nothing in Scripture teaches us to expect or to believe that Miracles should be the normal experience of all Christians, right? The, the time of Christ, we know this. The time of Christ is a time of heightened supernatural activity, right? So all of this stuff is happening because the Messiah is on earth. And, and Christ's miracles are not an end in themselves. They're to point to him. They're a proof of, of his claims concerning himself. So that brings people initially, but the, the idea is then we, now we move to the next level of faith, to really following Christ. Acts chapter 2 says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst just as you know yourselves. And so we believe that these miracles had a specific purpose in the formation of the church. And now in light of the closing of the canon of scripture, the purposes for these gifts have, have passed away. And we have the written word of God as our full measure of truthfulness that's sufficient for our daily life, for our Christian living, for our evangelism. We have this book, which records the life and the the miracles and everything that Christ did, his death and resurrection, his greatest miracle. And this is no small thing. To, To realize that in this day, you can get on a hundred different apps, a million different websites. You can go to Walmart for $5 and buy a complete copy of the Word of God to hold in your hands, to bring, to set in your lap at church, to use on a daily basis for your own personal devotions, to bring people to see Jesus Christ and, and, and who he is and what he did and his death on their behalf. This is an incredible gift and blessing. Yet so often I think as believers we we have the Bible sitting right here and, and we're saying, God, please speak to me. <laughs> Maybe the Holy Spirit is like, it's right there. <laughs> it's Right next to you, just pick it up. Read it. See what God has to say to you for your life. Having said all of this, Christ is not disparaging signs and miracles. He just doesn't want people to stop there. In fact, Not only is he not disparaging signs and miracles, guess what? He's about to do one. He's he's about to heal the son. And, And spoiler alert, the healing leads them to faith in Christ. And this is exactly what Christ wanted, for people to move beyond the signs and wonders, to believe in his word and have full faith in him. So we go to our next heading, verses 49 to 50, faith based on the word of Jesus. Verse 49 says, the royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. The nobleman pleads for his son again. Lord, he says, this time with a sense of urgency, before my son dies. Again, there's an example here of a a good father who's desperate for his son to be made well. And he's found Christ, and he has some measure of belief in him. But you notice that even, even his belief, even his understanding of Christ right now falls short? He underestimates Christ. How, does, how do you see that he underestimates Christ in his response, in this passage? Well, first of all, he thought that Jesus had to be bodily present in order to heal. He's kind of limited in his understanding of, of how far-reaching the power of Christ really is. And, and maybe this is because he was in Jerusalem and he saw Christ performing miracles in person, so he just assumed, like, you you got to come with me. And not only that, but he, he must have assumed that Jesus could heal but not raise the dead. Like, hurry, before he dies, as if death would limit Christ's power or abil- ability. And, and a question that I think is interesting to ask. Did Jesus, give the nobleman what he wanted. Well, Jesus' reply in the first part of verse 50, go, your son lives, kind of has a yes and a no, right? Jesus grants the healing, but he doesn't go down to Cana. Understand, sometimes God can work in ways that we didn't anticipate. I really like, in in my prayer life, I like to uh, dictate, you know, God, this is what I need you to do right? And this is when I need you to do it by, right? But that's not really how it works, is it? Sometimes we kind of fall into this trap, into this kind of mode. And the reality is God has a plan that's so much greater than ours. Jesus has so much more than physical healing on the docket here. He's, He's leading the nobleman to this higher faith. He declares, your son lives, and he tells the man to go. And I love this. With Apparently, no further explanation, no further proof, just the word of Jesus. And what does the man do? Simply believes the promise of Jesus, and he goes. So we come to verses 51 to 54. Faith placed in Jesus himself. As he was going down, verse 51, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. Then they said to him yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed in his whole household. This is again, a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Can you feel the joy? Can you feel the awe in this section? I mean, just imagine this scene, it's incredible. It's 7 p.m. when Christ tells him, go, your son lives. He's got to travel the the 20 miles back home. And it seems that he's he's probably delayed, maybe just by nightfall. Maybe he needs to rest his poor horse that he rode 20 miles to get to Christ or, or some other issue. Because now it's the next day. And he's traveling home when he's met with the news that his son lives. Of course, we already knew that because Jesus declared it. F.F. Bruce describes this in a, this experience neatly. He says, "Life, almost extinguished in the battle with death, had suddenly gained new strength from Jesus' reviving word and won the victory." Jesus spoke a word in Cana, and a boy was healed in Capernaum. And of course, just, just to verify, you know just to make sure, just to double check, the nobleman says, "What, uh, what time?" Did he get better? They said, yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And verse 53 says, so the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. This is the third time that we see the phrase, your son lives. And as the man realizes all that's gone on, he is transformed. He moves from faith in the signs and wonders to faith in the word of Christ to, to go to True saving faith, genuine saving faith placed in Jesus himself. And doesn't this just fit neatly with John's theme? With the theme of the gospel, this beautiful miracle that results in belief, that results in faith? You remember when we started our our very first message in the gospel of John? We went to John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, where it says, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John's saying, I recorded this miracle, this miracle of the healing of the noble one, so that you would believe, just like he did, so that you would be moved to faith in Christ, so that you would be moved to understand who Jesus Christ is and what he's done. And verse 54 notes that this is the second sign Jesus performed after coming to Galilee from Judah. It's not the, not the second miracle in all to this point in, in the ministry of Christ, but it's the second one to be performed in Galilee, the second one that John is, is recording for us. And, it, and in both of them, Jesus is at Cana. And now jump, jump back with me to verse 53. I, I want you to see the, what I think is the real headline. The real story of the passage, because it says in verse 53, he himself believed what and his whole household. That is to say, they became believers. They became followers of Jesus. This is the real scoop, not the not the giving of physical life to one little boy, but eternal life to an entire family. That's the real miracle. S. Lewis Johnson says, what a striking thing it is. A man comes to faith in Christ, and his whole house comes to faith also. You know, I've often seen this happen around the country. He says, discussing the salvation of an individual, we'll discover that that person was the first believer in their immediate home, and now every member of the house has become a Christian. It's a most wonderful thing that often happens and has happened here. It happened in the house of the Philippian jailer. Remember, for he himself believed, and his whole house believed with him. I'm sure that many of you in this audience, since you can sing I have been redeemed, can also look around and in your family and, and see how one member of the family came to Christ and as a result, the whole family has become a Christian family. And many of you have experienced this for yourselves. I, I know so many stories of, of one person, uh, children in our ministry. I know a family who, their children got invited to vacation Bible school and that just started this spiral in their family of, of people coming to Christ and some of you say well it it hasn't happened in my family my my aunt my uncle my son my daughter my my parents and yet as long as they draw breath there's still an opportunity right so you you continue to pray you continue to live faithfully in front of them so they see this is much more than a phase that you're going through right And, and you continue to to offer them as much as you're able to to speak the truth of the gospel to them and see what Christ might do. What do you think is more important to this father in John chapter 4, to this nobleman, really to any godly parent? Their children's physical well-being or their eternal soul? Do you pray as fervently for your children's salvation as you do for their safety, for their healing? As I'm thinking about the the nobleman almost losing his son this week. I can't help but think of the fact that many in our body have experienced children who have been sick, uh, with even serious illness or disease, some who have even lost children. I not help but think of the, the four children that my wife and I never got to hold in this life. And there is real grief. Associated with the loss of a child. But if that child is, is in Christ, if that child is lost in infancy, and, and we understand the, the real truth of eternity in the presence of God, there is incredible joy as well. Because we believe in eternal life, and, and for me to know that a child of mine was spared the cruelties of this world and ushered straight into glory, that is amazing. Not to have to worry about their salvation and to have a a guaranteed reunion, that's not a small comfort. That's not a small blessing. And as desperate as this father was in John 4 to have his son healed, his eyes were opened that day to what really matters most. It's good, men, fathers. On Father's Day, it's good to care about the physical health, the well-being of your family, to, to be providers. In fact, that's your responsibility before God. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So it's, a, it's, a, it's no small thing to, to care for the physical needs, to be a provider for your family. But it's just the first step to biblical fatherhood. So I want to close with just a a few words here for us. Pastor Jack Hughes has this word for us on Father's Day. He says, many husbands are content to be wage earners. Meanwhile, the children are all watching this. They learn from their dad that spiritual pursuits are not important. Instead, making money, buying things is what's important. And thus, the children who grow up in homes where the father isn't a spiritual leader usually depart from the faith their father professed to have. Oh, that that would not be so at Heritage Bible Church, but they, we understand the simple biblical truth that the father is primarily responsible for child training. Ephesians six four says, "You fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord." Men, teach your children the gospel. Model love for christ model a life that glorifies him be intentional about it as desperate as we see this man pursuing physical healing for his son have this this desperate uh idea in your heart in your mind that that you can't give up to see your children come to christ and, and live for his glory and be intentional about it fathers have you have you planned your summer I'm not asking if you have the the baseball schedule posted on the fridge, I know you do. I'm not asking if you planned a a barbecue or a summer vacation, you know, camping trip, trip to the beach. But have you planned how you will redeem these months and this time to minister to your family spiritually? Have you planned how you will grow to become more like your heavenly father and to show the character and the, the love of God to your wife and your children? And I know sometimes this seems like a like a daunting thing. It just kind of seems overwhelming, this idea of, of spiritual leadership in the home. And so we maybe we just kind of push it aside and focus on other things, you know, just try to be a good guy and, and make sure the bills are paid. Now let me encourage you. We have a, a staff of pastors. We have a group of elders who would love nothing more than to be able to help you and encourage you with some simple tools and ideas that you can embrace to, to start taking seriously the responsibility of being a spiritual leader in your home. It's not as difficult as it might seem. And it's something that the Holy Spirit enables us to do and we can find so much joy in. And so we wanna lead our children to faith. We wanna lead our children to recognize we come to Christ, not simply because we wanna get something from our faith, our Christianity, from, from God in an earthly sense, But we're turning our mindset, right, just as we see in these conversations over and over again with Christ, the turning of the mindset from earthly pursuits, from earthly things, to spiritual things, to heavenly things, to things that matter for all of eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the encouragement that we get from coming to your word, from seeing Christ and his incredible compassion and his incredible call to true faith to full faith and belief in him and who he is father i pray that you would strengthen us as fathers strengthen the men of this church to be all that you have called us to be and desire us to be and that we could just step back and be amazed at what you are able to do through us as weak as we are father through your spirit that we would be able to lead our families, that we would be able to influence those around us for the glory of God. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.